0: Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're walking our way in a a sermon series called The Plan from the Beginning through just about the first 22 chapters of Genesis. We're looking at this idea that God has a plan. We can see it throughout Scripture. We can see it in the Old Testament, the New Testament. We saw it in the book of Revelation. And so we're looking back at the very, very beginning of the Bible and saying, do we see the beginnings, the the implementation of God's plan right there in the early chapters of Genesis? And of course, the answer is absolutely yes. And so today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2. Last week we looked at uh, much of Genesis chapter 1, where God creates the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And sometimes when we come to Genesis chapter 2, we can struggle a little bit and say, well, it, aren't they going back? Isn't the author going back and retelling the same story, but in an entirely different way? And the answer, to some degree, is yes. And the reason that the author is doing that is what is so important. So we're going to look at the theme of this idea of a place of blessing and God's presence, this Garden of Eden that he puts Adam and Eve into for a very specific purpose. And as we look at this, we're going to think a lot about the blessings that God has given us, that he has created us to live in the joyous, overflowing blessings of his presence, his promise, his provision in our life. And sometimes I think as Christians... We can live under this idea that we want too much. What's our problem, we think sometimes in sin, is that we, just, we want too many things. And if we wanted less, we would be better Christians. C.S. Lewis has this to say. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I want to suggest today that one of the major problems in our contemporary culture is just that. We are far too easily pleased with lesser things, when God has created us to live in his presence with the abundance of blessings that are there. So we're looking at this idea of the way of life because I think that's what we see in Genesis chapter 2. It's not just the garden. It's not just about the creation of Adam and Eve. There's this implementation of a way. In fact, when you get into the New Testament, did you know that the early church, they weren't initially called Christians. They were called people of the way. When you look through the Old Testament, there's a strong uh, uh, focus on the Israelites following God's way, God's path. And I believe we see it all the way back in creation. God created a way, a path, a place of His blessing and His presence for us to live in. So that's what we're going to be looking at. This idea of the way of life that God created. So let's start with verse 4 in Genesis chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4, and I want to look at this idea that God has in creation and in his will for us, has abundantly provided for us. That God wants to, longs to, loves to give us everything that we could possibly need, that we could possibly want. So let's look at verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, right there, you should see that this is a retelling of the creation story. But this word, this phrase, this is the account of, this is actually where we get uh, the English title for the book of Genesis because in the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, the word is these are the generations of, these are the genesis of. And so we have this idea of this is the account. And Genesis is divided into several different, in fact, I think there's about 11 sections of these are the accounts of, and then there's a name or an item, and that's how the book is divided up. Now, the question is, what does it mean this is the account of? See, I read that and I think, oh, we're getting a biography. God's going to tell us exactly what happened to this person or this thing, and I want to know you know, place of birth, when were they married, what did they do, what what was their life like, and there are some of those things. But when we come to Scripture, the way that Scripture uses this is the account of is not to inform us that God is about to tell us everything we need to know about this person. To say this is the account of is to say there is a point A, there is a beginning. And it begins with this person or this item. In this case, it is the account of the heavens and the earth. And then there is a path, a journey that went on. Time has passed. And then there's a point B. And so to say this is the account of is to say the goal of the text is to tell us how did this thing or this person get from point A to point B. And the goal of the text is not to give us every single detail along the way. It's to help us understand how did things get to where they are. Because if you remember, when are the Israelites receiving the book of Genesis? They're going through the wilderness. They're on their way to the promised land. And much of the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the first five books of the Bible, much of these things are geared to help the, under, the Israelites understand who they are. How did God get the world to the point where he has called the Israelites? And I think we can look at it the same way. Because we can say, how did we get to the point where we are at? Because that tells us how we are to follow God along the way in our life. These or this is the account of the heavens and the earth, and so this account runs from chapter 2, verse 4. If you flip over, it goes all the way to the end of chapter 4 because chapter 5 begins. This is the written account of Adam's family line, so there's a new account that starts. So here we have in Genesis 2, 3, and 4 we have the account of the heavens and the earth creation, what happened to creation, between the point that God created it and the world that the Israelites are living in and saying, something's wrong here. Now, we're not going to look at this whole account today. It's too big. So we're going to look at just chapter 2, starting in verse 4. We'll go through chapters 3 and 4 next week. So today's really the good news. Next week is the bad news. But both are so important for us to understand the world that we live in. So let's look at verses five and uh, five through seven. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now, at this point, Us modern, scientifically minded people say, whoa, wait a minute. Genesis chapter 1 said God created the plants first, and then he created man. Now God's contradicting himself, and he's saying God created man first, and then the plants came later. And this is the point at which I remind us, and we need to remind ourselves, our ways of thinking are not the ways that everybody throughout history have thought. That wasn't the question they were asking in Genesis chapter 2, and frankly, it's not the answer that God's trying to give in Genesis chapter 2. When you come to this idea of this is the account, or I'm sorry, go to verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. That phrase and the things like it are very common in the ancient Near East when they are telling creation stories. And the point of it, again, is not to give us a timeline. Their goal in these texts was not to fill out a chart with dates and say this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It was to help us to understand a purpose. So when the ancient cultures and the Israelites read this, we read before, time-wise, God created something, this is what he did. What they heard was when the earth was not yet functioning according to God's plan. Do you see the difference there? They read, God has a plan. And we're about to hear how he implemented that plan. And so that phrase, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the ground and there was no one to work the ground. They hear, God's about to tell us how he did all those things. So it's about purpose, not necessarily about timeline. The other interesting thing when you get to... Chapter, I'm sorry, verse 8, says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east. So sometime in the past, God had planted a garden. Again, the Hebrew text is not laying these things out in a timeline. So if somebody comes to you and says, Oh, there's a contradiction here. No, there's not. These things are more like a sermon. They're not a history lesson. They're trying to emphasize a theme and a goal and to help us understand the purpose for which we are created. And so we see in verse 7, let's look at some of these themes. We don't have time to go into all of them, but look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Do you know what's being emphasized there? If you remember back to chapter 1, there was a huge emphasis on the image of God. And we looked at that and said, we are separate from all creation because we're made in God's image. And that's true. But in Genesis 2, there's another emphasis here. And the emphasis in this passage is we are part of creation. We are created beings. We are not equal to God. We are part of this world. He is our Lord. He is our God. We are part of a special part, but we are part of creation. We are made of the dust. But also we are a special part because it says God breathed into our nostrils. God breathed into us the breath of life. That's why we have life. It's very different than any of the other animals. We have a life that is directly from God in this special relationship with Him. Let's look at verses 8 through 14. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there He put man He had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Habila where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now some of these rivers they recognized and it helped them to sort of pinpoint in general where on the earth the Garden of Eden may have been. But we also have to recognize that a huge event took place between this account and when the Israelites are receiving it that drastically changed the face of the world. It's called the flood and we'll be looking at that in a little bit. So... any efforts on our part, frankly, to try to pinpoint the exact location of the Garden of Eden are going to be futile because so much has changed between now and then. And I don't think that's anything that God wants us to be busy with. But let's look at these abundant blessings that God had provided. Now, again, remember, where are the Israelites when they first receive this book of the Bible? What's their surroundings like? They're in the desert. They're crying out for food. They're crying out for water. And and they're being fed by manna, just little flakes of bread that are falling to the ground and collecting on the ground. They're being fed by quail that are being swept in supernaturally by God. And they get so sick of it. They're crying out for water and they're getting water out of a rock. Their barest of bare needs are being provided for by God. But they're just hanging on. And they're just trusting God. Now imagine in that context, you're hearing about this garden. The other thing is, where are the Israelites going? They're on their way to the promised land. They're on their way to a place where God is saying, I have prepared a place for you. You need to trust me between now and then because I'm taking you somewhere. And he goes back and it's like he's saying, let me tell you about the first place I took you to. Let me tell you about the first place I created for you. And look at the lavishness of this description, the abundance of life that is there. God had planted a garden. Eden means delight or pleasure. It's even the word itself for the garden is just this abundance and overflowing of blessings. And it's in that, in this incredible creation, it's in that garden that God puts Adam and Eve. But there's more than that. Not only is it this beautiful place where they're abundantly blessed, it's a, there's a purpose there. Throughout Scripture, Eden is understood as this place of God's dwelling. It's the place of God's presence. It's the place where God would hang out with Adam and Eve on the face of the earth. So not only do they have food and, and everything they could possibly need and it just live in joy, but they're living in the very presence of the Lord Almighty. We see this in chapter 3, verse 8, in a very different context when Adam and Eve have fallen into sin, but we're told, verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, some people say God knows that something had gone wrong and he's come down to check it out. That's not the way I see that language. People walk in a garden in the cool of the day because that's what you do in a garden. This is God just being with his people. He loves them. He created them to be in his presence. Now, does he know what went on? Absolutely But I think we see just this glimpse of what's going on. In fact, I think we can see this very distinctly at the end of the account in chapter 3, after sin has come in. Chapter 3, verse 23, it says, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. The punishment for sin was exile from the blessed presence of God. And we are living on this side of that garden gate. And as the Israelites receive this, they understand as they look around at the wilderness, as they look at their history of enslavement in Egypt, as they look to the promised land, they understand they're living in a world that is on this side of the gate of the Garden of Eden. Something has gone wrong but we can see this purpose. And then when we get all the way to Revelation chapter 22, we've talked about this several times before, this eternal state is first described as a temple, this tabernacle, the city of Jerusalem that is spoken of in very strong terms that link into the Old Testament tabernacle. But then in chapter 22, the eternal state is described as a garden, a new garden of Eden, living in God's blessing. This is what God has for us. And you see these imagery, there are this imagery of trees and rivers used throughout Scripture as the abundance of God's blessing. Look at verse 9. Back to Genesis chapter 2. It says the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Remember that phrase because that's going to come up next week in chapter 3. God made these trees amazing. And throughout Scripture, trees are used as an example of an abundant source of life, bearing their fruit over and over and over again. They didn't just go down to Tim Horton's and grab what they needed. They didn't have a Wegmans to run into. They needed the land to produce the food for them. And again, as wilderness wanderers here, they're crying out for a source of food. And to think about, what if we could live in the presence of a tree that fed us constantly? And God says, that's exactly what I've made you for. I have made you to live in a place where all of your needs are provided for. Trees take on another meaning in Scripture as well. Not only are they a source of food, but they are a source of life. Specifically, God providing life for His people. And then at the end of verse 9, we have these two particular trees. The tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this understanding of, of a source of or a supply of something carries over to these trees as well. So the tree of life is this image of a life-giving thing that God has given them. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is an image of something that gives the knowledge of good and evil. Now, right then, you should stop and say, wait a minute, what's he saying? Are you saying these aren't real trees? I like... Literature. I love Fyodor Dostoevsky. I can't say his name. Dostoevsky is one of my favorite authors. Really hard to read, but I love him because as you dig into *Crime and Punishment* or *The Idiot*, it's one of my favorite ones, partially because it's a cool title. But as you dig into, it's it's a wonderful book because the main character, the idiot, is a picture of Christ, and the whole point of the book is how out of sync the world is with who Christ is. It's just a beautiful, beautiful picture. What was my point in that? (laughs) Literature. Yes, images. Okay, so Prince Mishkin, I can't believe I remember that. He's the main character of the idiot. He is an image of Christ. Does that mean he's not a real character in the story? No, he's a real character in the story. He's an actual character that's walking around and he's talking to people. But in his interactions, he has a meaning. He has a purpose that the author has put there. Now you're saying, well, that's fiction, though. He's not a real person. He's just an author's creation. Okay, so who's the author of creation? Who's the author of history? God is. Do you think that God, and I hope you can answer this appropriately based on what we've studied, did God create things without meaning? Did he create things without purpose? Absolutely not. God has put things into creation, literal, real things, like trees in the garden, a tree of life, and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. But they mean something. They have an importance beyond just the fact that they are a physical tree. So what do they mean? We're going to come back to those in chapter 2 because they take on a greater meaning as we see, or I'm sorry, chapter 3, as we see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the fall. But again, the idea is God created a source of life and he created a source of the knowledge of good and evil. And which one did he tell them not to, to, uh, to eat from? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is nowhere in Scripture a, prohib- scripture a prohibition against eating from the tree of life. I think it was part of the abundant blessing in the garden. God wanted them to have life and life eternal. He wanted them to live in His life. Now we could go into the rivers as well and the rivers that flowed into these places and the abundant blessings there and throughout Scripture there. In fact, Ezekiel 47, there's this beautiful picture of water trickling from the base of the temple, the presence of God, and it flows out and it waters the land. It's this beautiful picture of God blessing and providing. The Garden of Eden is created by God for us to live in His presence, under His blessing, for the provision of life. God's way of life is a path. And along that path is His presence and His blessing. I want you to hold on to that because we'll come back to that. What are we supposed to do in this place of blessing? Were Adam and Eve just supposed to hang out and just You know, sit around and relax and just sip on you know culottes or something. Were they just chilling in the Garden of Eden? No, they actually had a job to do. They had a purpose, and God put things in place to guard that purpose. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, "You are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. God had a purpose for humanity. We see this word that we don't like to see, work. He wanted them to work in the garden. Have you ever heard the phrase, oh, work is a product of the fall. That's because of sin in the world we are supposed to work. That's not true. Did you know that? People say, what are we going to be doing in heaven? We'll just be sitting around lounging on on clouds and, and strumming harps. Man, that sounds so boring to me. I don't want to do that. God created us to work. But what if you could work in a place of eternal joy, eternal blessing, where everything you need is always provided for you and everything that you do brings you the greatest joy and satisfaction. And every day you wake up and say, this is what I was created to do. I get to do the thing that God has made me to do. And I love it. We get snippets of that today, don't we? But what if you live that way forever and ever? That's the kind of work that God is talking about. There's no drudgery here in the Garden of Eden. They were to care for the tabernacle. In fact, these phrases, these words here, to work and to care for it, these come up again when we get to the tabernacle and they're used of the priests in their service to the Lord in the tabernacle. This is a spiritual service to God. That's what we are created for. We have a specific role in creation and it is a God-centered role to keep focused on him and his purpose for our life wow we're running out of time okay we're going to pick this up so we see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and god puts this guard in place he says i've given you so much work it use it rule over it but this one thing knowledge of good and evil now what is that i've talked about this before I believe that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the right and the responsibility, the authority to determine what is good and what is evil. I don't think it's just them waking up and going, oh, well, this is good and this is evil. Oh, now I know. I think it's the right to claim, I say this is good and I say this is evil. And God makes it clear throughout Scripture that is not our authority. That is His. We are not to claim that. We are not to take that. God is the one who determines good and evil. And he says, when you do this, the day you eat of this, you will surely die. Now, what does that mean? It's more than just physical death. It is that, but it's much, much more. In Scripture, death is a separation from God. That's the worst part of death, this eternal separation. Adam and Eve get cast out of the garden. That's one step. Existence becomes difficult. Work becomes hard and drudgery. That's another step in this death. Physical death enters the world. That's another step. And then we have all the way to eternal punishment, the ultimate death. Our world seems to have one rule. Do whatever makes you happy. God had one rule. Trust me for right and wrong. You get to have all of this blessing. Trust me for what is right and wrong. That is his way. And then we come to verses 18 through 25. We'll try to move quickly. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever he or the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the, the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. God intentionally designed us in the Garden of Eden, male and female, for a purpose. This is so important in our world today because this passage, this idea throughout Scripture is under attack day after day after day. And as Christians, we are under attack. We are be called foolish and bigots. We are be called, called ignorant and immature, holding on to these archaic things. It is archaic. It's very old. It goes all the way back to the beginning. But if God truly created all things and he truly did it with a purpose, shouldn't we go to that purpose and say, God, you tell us what it is. It is not for us to make up what is right and wrong. That is God's job. We are still doing the sin from the Garden of Eden over and over and over in our world today. We see that God designed us for these God-shaped relationships. He made Adam to be with Eve. He made men to be with women. He made humanity in general to not be alone. He made us as communal people to live in relationships. All these different levels of relationships, all the way up to the pinnacle of human relationships, man and wife. Adam has a special place in the garden as he names the animals, and yet God says no suitable helper has been found. God's purpose for humanity, according to this passage, is not complete until there is man and woman. Why? Because in Genesis 1.28, they were given a command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the whole world. You need man and woman to do that. That's one level. But more than that, God creates community. He wants us to live together. It's not good for us to be alone. We need each other. Husbands need wives. Other families need other families. The church needs the church. We need each other in community. We see that in Ephesians 5 where God uses man and wife to show the relationship between Christ and the church. But it's more than that even. In Genesis 1:26 and 27, God says, let us create man in our own image. He uses a plural for himself. I believe he's speaking of the Trinity there. And then he goes on and says, so us, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, will create man. And then he specifically says, male and female, he created them. The unity within the diversity of the genders is a display of God's glory. It's a display of God's plan. We see the rib, and it tells us about this special relationship. Unlike every other animal, Eve is related to Adam. They have this unique bond, this concept of one flesh. And then in verse 25, they are both naked and they felt no shame. They have nothing to hide as they live in God's blessing. In the world today, I think we see shame as an illness to be cured. You feel shame? You feel guilt? Take a pill. Go see this doctor. He'll write you a scripture or a, a prescription. <laughs> That's a good doctor. You feel shame because of something you have done? Go sit with this person and they'll make you feel better and say, you don't need to feel that. You need to grow up and you need to move on from that. Now, please hear me, because I hear this all the time. People say, are you saying doctors are wrong? It's good to go to doctors. Sometimes medication is necessary. Please hear that. Their purpose is not to relieve us of shame and guilt. That just covers over it. Shame, quite frankly is God's gift to us to say, you have moved beyond my boundaries and I'm calling you back. Don't go too far. It's the collar on the dog that reaches the invisible fence and goes, "Ah," and he runs back to the safety of his own yard. Shame is something that God has put in our world for a purpose. And in the Old Testament, they saw God as Creator and Lord. They saw the purpose, that He has a purpose for our design and our creation. And shame is a boundary on that. Shame was important to them. God has a design for creation. Look, we've been giving incredible blessings. And I'm running out of time, but there's so many things in here. of The authority of humanity over creation. But there is one blessing that God has not given us. There is an area of authority that is clearly not given here. It is the authority and the right to redefine human gender and human sexuality that is not ours. That is a claiming of something that is God's and God's alone. Now, please hear me. It is no different than any other sin in the world. All sin is a desire to operate outside of God's blessing outside of God's presence. It is saying, thank you, but no thank you. I will do this my own way. And we're going to see that in Genesis chapter 3. And there are consequences. There are personal consequences. There are societal consequences. And there are eternal consequences. I started with a quote from C.S. Lewis. I want to end with one. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And all of Scripture is a testimony that God has provided a way back to His way of life, back to this blessing He created us for. And that way is Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus is the new Garden of Eden for us. And we can come to him and be restored to the rightful relationship and the presence of God. And that tension that we feel as our hearts are yearning for things to fulfill us and to give us meaning and purpose and we seek all these different things, Jesus says, no, you'll never be satisfied till you come to me because I am your satisfaction. In Christ, the way of life created in the garden but rejected by humanity is restored and a new creation is made possible and we are invited to come but only through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a whirlwind look at Genesis chapter 2, but I pray we would understand and appreciate the blessings for which You have created us. We would take that seriously in our own lives and understand the, the things we cling to are too small. And we need to come to You and say, God, make us dissatisfied with this world. May we not try to get out from underneath shame, but come to You and say, God, restore us, for that is where the shame is listed or lifted from us. And Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ that has taken our shame and our guilt upon Himself to save us from it, that through Him we can be restored to this way of life, this blessedness of life with You now in this sinful world and eventually in eternity when all of the sin of the world will be wiped away. Thank you for the blessing of life. In your name we pray, amen.